0: You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. And I'd like to start out today reminding you, uh, wealthformula.com is a website with all sorts of special information in there. All sorts of resources, free books, etc. Free books from me, from George Newberry, Uh, Lots of goodies there, so make sure you check it out. It's also the place where you sign up for Investor Club. If you are an accredited investor and you're ready to get off the sidelines and start joining a group of like-minded individuals looking for potential opportunities, then you must go to WealthFormula.com right now and sign up for Investor Club. Of course, you have to be accredited. What is accredited? It means you either make two or three hundred two hundred thousand dollars a year as an individual, three hundred thousand dollars if filing jointly, or a million dollars outside of your million uh, dollars net worth outside of your personal residence. That qualifies you. You don't have to apply. You don't have to go to the DMV or anything. You just are an accredited investor at that point, and you can sign up for Investor Club because, after all, who doesn't want to be part of a club? Right. And um, the other thing I'm going to remind you is even if you're not accredited, you can be part of a different type of network. And a lot of you accredited investors are already part of this. But there is the Wealth Formula Network. That is our inner inner circle of Wealth Formula fans. And um, basically, this is a you know, there's a course that creates a foundation for this with a bunch of very familiar names like Tom, we I Kim McElroy, you know, the usual suspects, uh, with a robust educational course. And that is followed with a mastermind with a Facebook group. That's become very active where you can get questions answered. Uh, and also biweekly mastermind calls with your, yours truly. We do them on zoom so we can actually see each other and, um, uh, and, uh, you know, it's 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 like a little party We do that every other Wednesday And it usually lasts for about an hour and a half It's a good time Anyway, check that out at wealthformularoadmap.com And uh, I'd love to see more of you participate in that Because, I mean, you seem to have an awful lot of fun At the Scottsdale event a few weeks ago So this is basically just, you know, keeping that party going Now, on for today's topic. Now, let's start out, let me bring you back to the 1980s or, you know, 70s or whatever, whenever you were a kid. And you'd go to the doctor with your parents, you know, you were a kid and your parents brought you to the pediatrician and, you know, everybody looked at the doctor and they kind of held him or her in high esteem. you know, they trusted him or her and they thought, gosh, you know, that's a person with a lot of integrity, somebody who's smart, somebody who, you know, deserves to have a position in society of a little bit of respect, you know? They wouldn't say things like, he's just doing the test so he can go make some extra money, or he's getting kickbacks from that drug company or vaccine company. That's why he wants you to do it. Now, these are the types of things that I hear on a regular basis when I go to the YMCA every day, drives me crazy. I'm sitting in the sauna and that's what people are talking about. Of course, they don't know that I'm a physician. Um, and sometimes they get me in the conversation and then I point out, yes, I am a physician. And yes, I actually do believe that doctors are not just out there. True, screw you. Anyway, doctors in science and for those of you who are of the Healthcare uh, type, you know this. Uh, we are becoming in- decreasingly popular these days, and it's and it's really from you know uh, both political extremes. You know, it's just you know you got people who are uh, okay. Let's just say science and medicine, right? So on the science part, you got people who don't believe in climate change. Well, gosh it's weird out there folks the weather's getting really weird you don't think this is changing and hey guess what science says there is climate change and i believe in science so you may not believe that but i do all right now that that usually the denial of that comes from the right but then on the left there's this crazy denial of vaccinations and you know how they cause autism although there's never been any study that actually validates that point. There was some fake study and this guy was, you know, completely um, uh, you know, found to be a big fraud. And uh outside from, you know, I mean the major major authority on this anti vaxxer movement is Jenny McCarthy, a former Playboy model, and I think that um one of the uh, I think it was uh in you know, one of those other shows um uh, from the seventies. I can't remember the blonde one. Anyway, the so so that's from the left. But I should say, the left, the the most unvaccinated county uh, in the country is Marin County, which is a, uh, just uh, just near uh, San Francisco. There, so extremely liberal, and for some reason they don't believe in science either. So it's coming from everywhere. For the, those of us who are people who believe in science and medicine, uh, you know. Uh, listen, we are, a lot of people disagree with us. And and uh, on the other hand, let me just point out, it's not just disagreement. You see, these days, <clears throat> it seems like doctors and scientists often are the object of not just disagreement, but of disdain from all over the place. You know, a few months back, I was at a mastermind event. A lot of you know I'm part of a a, a few of those. And this one's for entrepreneurs, and it's a really good group. But the mastermind leader in the room asked how many, quote-unquote, functional doctors we had in the room. So I'm thinking to myself, wait, do I raise my hand? What's a functional doctor? So I raised my hand, and I said, well, I'm a I'm a real doctor. Does that count? And, of course, you see, uh, you can imagine what kind of, uh, you know, <laughs> There, there was about there was literally twenty people in that room practicing some kind of alternative medicine without any degree at all, who called themselves some kind of doctor of uh, of 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 uh, non allopathic medicine, which is fine. I'm just saying. So that being the case, I being the actual only MD in the room, uh, thought it was reasonable to ask the question if I counted as a uh, quote unquote functional doctor. Anyway, I got hissed at from a lot of people. I actually got told I was killing people instead of helping them by one person. And then I finally got off the hook when I announced that I hadn't practiced medicine in a couple of years. And as far as I could remember, uh, I'd never actually killed anyone. I mean, at least that I know of. Anyway, it's, um, you will, if you're a physician or if you're in healthcare, you're a scientist, anytime, any of those things. These days, you know, it's not really a good time to be us these days, because we're losing respect and we're losing reimbursement at the same time. Uh, and for those of you sticking it out, and I know a number of you are in insurance-based medicine, you're getting, you're getting, you know, ramrodded every every year. Um, you know, fight, keep fighting the good fight. I mean, good, good for you. And I I know that uh, you deserve every penny you get, and no matter what they say. I don't think you're a charlatan and I know you don't get paid for sending somebody for an MRI or to get a blood test like some people seem to think you do. Uh anyway, now I should say that I am a um I guess a real doctor or as we like to say allopathic uh, physician um and you know I and not just allopathic but osteopathic guys out there too. You're you're real doctors too. I mean, we're all we, we study the same kind of scientific medicine, uh, but we, we call ourselves doctors, um, and that's you know in the old-fashioned sense. Uh, despite the fact that I'm one of those real doctors, I don't disregard alternative therapies at all. I really don't. I, I really don't. In my view, if it doesn't hurt you, then give it a try. If it doesn't hurt you, give it a try. I mean, we, we don't always know why things work, uh, until later. And that's just the truth. I mean, take aspirin. Now, I don't know the exact history, but I know that aspirin has been around for well over a hundred years. I know it comes from like tree bark. And I'm guessing at some point, you know, someone who was in pain, got, you know, was in so much pain, they just felt like they had to bite down on some bark or something, and then they felt better. And the next thing you know, people started using it for pain and we didn't discover why it worked many many years later that's how things work a lot of times things work and then we discover why they work later and so i'm not against alternative stuff at all um you know another example of that is acupuncture i mean acupuncture has been around for centuries man right the science, the, the the chinese have been doing this forever and it's been you know now it's been proven to be beneficial for a variety of ailments um, and, uh, but you know, the, in Chinese medicine, it's been for centuries, we've known that, but I mean, for, you know, recently, for example, uh, there was a study and this is not so recently, but a couple of years ago showing that acupuncture actually helps people with sinus problems. Now I actually, I gotta tell you, I wouldn't have believed it frankly, uh, until the studies came out. Cause I don't really kind of necessarily see the, uh, the correlation. Uh, but, hey, it works. And if even before a study came out like that, if somebody said, hey, I got this bad science problem, people are saying, you know, acupuncture might help. What do you think, uh, doctor? Should I give that a try? I wouldn't say no. No, go ahead. Go give it a try. You know, absolutely. If it's not going to hurt you and you think it might actually help you, then give it a go. And maybe... Maybe if it works, maybe even it's a placebo effect because the placebo effect is real. And so great, you find a placebo that works. I'm all for it. Anyway, one of the areas right now where there are plenty, plenty of non-validated treatments uh, that many people swear by is in the area of chronic pain. And so this week on Well Formula Podcast, we're going to talk to someone who believes he has a novel means of treating chronic pain with greater than 80% efficacy. And um, if you want to, you can even invest in this project. And that's why this is on this show, because we are ultimately an investing show. We're not a doctor show. Um, anyway, this was a project that was brought, uh, to me from somebody, uh, in Wealth Formula Network and they like this person. So I, you know, it's a no like trust thing, but full disclaimer, I have absolutely nothing to do financially or otherwise with this company. I'm not invested, etc. It's just, um, it's for educational purposes. Like I have to tell you every time we have somebody who is raising capital, uh, I don't have anything to do with it. I don't make any money. I'm not invested, etc. But anyway, when you come back, you will learn about this new uh, offering that is uh, in this area of chronic pain and how you can potentially get involved when we come back. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show uh, today. My guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Brendan Lundberg, who is co-founder of Radiant Pain Relief Centers. Uh, he and his partner David Farley, uh, who is a Harvard MIT-trained physician set out with a vision to build the safest, uh, most consistent, effective, and appealing solution to the chronic pain epidemic that is probably underappreciated in this world. I can tell you I'm in pain right now. Anyway, Brendan and Dr. Farley opened uh, what is called Radiant Pain Relief Centers, and they own, opened their first center in Portland, Oregon, in February of 2000 and Fourteen, and following the success of the first center, they are now laying out a plan for expansion to open new centers and markets, both nationally and internationally. So, Brandon, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast.
1: Thank you, Buck. I am honored to be here.
0: Well, that's kind of you to say. So yeah, we, we were talking earlier, we know a few people in common, and actually you were uh, you were referred as a potential guest from one of our wealth formula network, uh, members. And so that was, uh, that's always a nice, um, you know, no like trust thing that we do around here when we get somebody on the show. So, um, let's talk a little bit about this whole chronic pain thing, which you're involved with. And yeah, Uh, By the way, I should point out the reason we're going to be talking, we're talking about this is there's an investment uh, opportunity involved. We're not just talking about this on an investing show just because. Um, But first, uh, Brendan, obviously, you know, you're not a physician uh, per se. You know, how how'd you get involved with chronic pain? How has it affected you personally? Is it how did you find this area? It has affected
1: me personally. In fact, I, I started developing chronic low back pain as a teenager, you know, fit, healthy, active, and kind of uh, unknown as to why I'm experiencing this pain, experiencing my low back at a young age. And I had an uncle that was a chiropractor. So I get regular adjustments throughout my growing up years and always felt good and seemed to help resolve the pain, but never fully resolved it long term. Mm-hmm. Uh, into my 20s, it started to get worse. I ended up talking to, well, I had a sister that went through massage therapy school. And I remember her doing something on me called structural integration, which is very uncomfortable massage. is really kind of, like you know, fascial work and things. And her commenting that it looked like there was some rotation happening in my hips that was kind of... Uh, strange and um, talking to a sports medicine doctor who thought maybe I was getting some scoliosis or something and you know his course of action was meds, watch it, keep moving. At some point maybe we go in there and put in some rods, keep that back nice and straight. The pain doctors wanted to give me medication and injections and ultimately go in there and you know take some sort of surgical intervention towards it. I didn't do those things and just kind of kept living my life and my career has been spent in healthcare related business. I'm not a physician as you said um, but I've been in healthcare related you know uh, affairs my entire career, and saw an opportunity to start Radiant, and as we did, and we could talk more about that, but as we did, uh, I got treated there, and I had developed by this point really kind of debilitating sciatica pain down my right leg and into my groin, that pain following our therapy has never returned now, it's been over three years and feeling much better uh, in, that, in that way. And then understanding the neuroscience of pain, which is really fascinating stuff and really where, where the science is leading, uh, helps us under, I, identify that there's some neurologic deficiency that's causing this. And in my case, you know the nervous system's job is to keep us alive, which means it needs to see the landscape, it needs to be able to keep us upright, the vestibular system balances us, the touching feeling senses and proprioception, which is our orientation in space. So, for many chronic pain sufferers, there's some disconnect between one of these sensory inputs and in the brain, or the brain's interpretation of that. And that results in the, the body trying to make some adaptation. In my case, I have a right eye that doesn't like to, you know, doesn't like to play ball like it's supposed to. And so I see just fine. So when I go to the eye doctor, I don't, you know, it doesn't get flagged as a bad eye, but I walk around with my right eye kind of disconnected from the world. And so consequently, because my nervous system wants to keep me alive, it makes a very subtle adjustment in the positioning of my head. So that my left eye is positioned to be more dominant and see the landscape. Well, that that causes some compensations that has to be made throughout the spine. Otherwise, I walk in circles to my right, and so the result is a manifestation of pain in my low back. So, you know, that's kind of a long story to say. There's there's so much kind of going on here. Our therapy is safe and effective, and I can't wait to talk about it because well, there's certainly. Let's back
0: up. <clears throat> let's back yeah. up a little bit, and and uh, I would be remiss if I didn't try to drill down on this a little bit. I don't know if you know my background is as a neurosurgeon. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I have a, a fair amount of uh, interest in in neuroscience, and that was really kind of where I was. You you said a bunch of different things, um, <laughs> and I I know it's it's very um uh, I this is a frankly something that I I I want to make sure that we're clear about because there's a lot of misinformation out there, um and we get into this sort of you know allopathic medicine is bs and you know we're doing yeah. everything the wrong way and that's just not true and you know that right um, but let's let's talk a little bit about first of all what was it um what was what was it that was causing the the back pain you said you had sciatica so did you have some kind of a, a disc herniation or something or or was there anatomically something that was causing you uh, yeah presumably was- between if you're a groin pain that's probably like an l2 l3 Yep. Uh, nerve uh disc herniation is that, No, I, disc I don't want to get too technical, but I'm not, yeah, I just yeah. don't want to just kind of gloss yeah. over this because, because yeah. there's form and function and pathophysiology that you can't just get around.
1: Uh, you know, absolutely. So, well, you know, the body is an adaptation machine. It's made to adapt. And so, um, you know, understanding the neuroscience, the way that we do and that we promote within our, our clinic is that, Um, You know, there's a neurologic driver of function or dysfunction and oftentimes if we think of it like like the circular of a clock with the brain being at the 12 o'clock position and then outputs of function or dysfunction uh, around the the curvature of the clock and then back up to the brain. the, The brain is both taking information from the inputs of the body as well as external. So endogenous and external inputs that give it a sense of information about safety and function and movement and everything. We typically identify some level of dysfunction, uh, pain, or, you know, know, joints that aren't moving like they're supposed to, and we address that. Our philosophy is that if the brain is the contributing factor to a pain experience, then if we can change the brain, it can potentially change the output and course correct itself. So I did have some, and I still probably do have some uh, mechanical misalignment in my low back. And rather than trying to fix it there with a surgical intervention, I I exercise regularly and that helps keep it at bay. But these identification tools or these assessments and drills that we do, in addition to our our primary therapy, helped identify that my right eye wasn't really doing its job, or at least my brain wasn't interpreting that my right eye was doing its job like it's supposed
0: to. Although you do know, I mean, obviously people are usually either right eye or left eye dominant, so it's not necessarily abnormal. Yeah. To have. It's not,
1: no, correct. It's not necessarily abnormal, uh, but it doesn't mean it's optimal, right? I mean, so there's, a, there's, there's dysfunction, there's normalcy, and then there's optimal function. And there's a, obviously a range and a gamut within that. And so, you know, most of us do live with some level of dysfunction and our body adapts and we survive, but most of us have pain too, right? So, right. you know, I think we're, we're at a really interesting intersection with what we're doing at Radiant because pain is such a big problem. As you mentioned, it's probably understated. In the United States, over 100 million people are reported to have chronic pain. Right. And, you know, that's more than cancer, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease combined. So it's a big population of people that are, you know, per- hurting on a pretty regular basis. And many of them feel baffled and betrayed by these bodies that, you know, uh, are hurting. And in many cases, their doctors haven't been able to help them identify or resolve it. And it's kind of inexplicable as to why it, why so, it hurts.
0: So you talk about, <clears throat> you know, there's a difference between, I think, um, you know, a a clearly identifiable anatomical uh, purpose for pain in your case, perhaps it was a, you know, L2, L3 disc herniation, which, you know, 90 some percent of the time that pain's going to go away on its own about, uh, you know, within about six weeks. Yeah. Uh, But then there's also a kind of pain that sometimes you cannot identify exactly what the source is. Um, and I presume you're kind of focusing more on that. Is that right? Or that's you, absolutely right.
1: Okay. Yeah, we look at we look at pain as a protective function. You know, if you have your hand on the hot stove, or you've broken a bone, or you have cancer growing in your tissue, sure, you want to be feeling pain because it's going to get your attention. You're going to seek care and it's going to get resolved, hopefully. Got it. In chronic pain, though, we define chronic pain as pain that's been present longer than is appropriate. As you mentioned, six weeks or so, tissue should heal. The pain should subside. It's no longer necessary in most cases. So when it's lingering longer or when the pain is growing disproportionate to a cause, or in some cases, there's no cause, like fibromyalgia for many people is kind of an inexplicable pain experience that's happening and growing over time. This is the, this is an, a non-productive type of pain experience. It's not serving the person. It's just a, literally a pain, and it, it could actually be uh, causing further problems. Because if they're hurting, likely they're moving less than they otherwise would, which would probably you know incline them to gain weight. Their sleep is likely disrupted, and that combination of factors creates many, many other comorbidities and problems. And then most of us just pop pills, and so the pills then inevitably you know we become dose tolerant to them. We have to keep upping the dosing, and inevitably there's some sort of you know chemistry change in the body. Body or side effect that starts to happen, or addiction, or a combination of these things, and you know we have obviously this very omnipresent opioid addiction epidemic that's kind of in the news, sure. and so you know we yeah again I we just feel really fortunate to have a therapy that's um, you know very well, safe, very effective.
0: Let's talk a little bit about um, so you met up with Doctor Farley, yep, and he is a physician.
1: He is a medical doctor. Yeah, again what trained kind, at Harvard and yeah. what
0: kind of physician is he? What specialty is he?
1: He's a family medicine doctor, and he would tell you much to the chagrin of his uh, instructors and professors and colleagues at Harvard and MIT, he chose to go into family medicine uh, after doing some residencies and has uh-huh. been in clinical practice for about 30 years here in the Portland area.
0: Got it. And and so tell me about the actual treatment. How, so yeah. let, let's, let if you're talking about um, treating, I guess, in, in a in non-pharmaceutical way, what What's the novel treatment that that you're proposing with this? Yeah.
1: So again, you know, with the with the philosophy and understanding of the of the most recent neuroscience is that pain is is neurogenic. It's driven from the brain experience in the tissue. And again, in the short term, it's protective, in the long term, it's not so protective. And the brain essentially becomes habitualized or wired to kind of expect and perpetuate the pain phenomenon in a way that's no longer serving a a protective function. So rather than trying to mask it at the tissues or mask it with the drug or address it at the the pain site, the tissue site where the pain is experienced, we are able to transmit new information. We have an FDA-cleared medical device that we identified and, um, you know, been spending the last few years really learning and, and, you know, positioning ourselves to be able to control. FDA-cleared, um, been researched at the Mayo Clinic and Johns Hopkins, but ignored by mainstream medicine because it was predicated on a tens unit when it was taken through the FDA. And so, tens has obviously been around for many, many decades. And you know, this is a, in in many clinicians' first blush an uh, an over overly priced tens unit. But it's actually quite different. So the technology acts like an artificial nerve. Essentially, it generates a dynamic set of artificial nerve impulses. We attach electrodes on the skin in healthy tissue that doesn't hurt, but is you know in proximity to the painful area. We turn the device on. We begin to generate those impulses from the, you know, from the technology through the wires of the machine up through the peripheral nerves through what is called the C fibers of the nervous system then through the CNS and into the brain. The brain receives these impulses and begins to interpret them essentially as an endogenous or a natural self-generated message, and it begins to ease the pain experience. What happens is that the, the messaging coming out of the device is dynamic and changing, so the brain doesn't become tolerant to it. It has to kind of respond to this, and this helps break up these neurotags or these associations or wirings that are Perpetuating the pain experience, it begins to break those up and the brain is able through neuroplasticity or its ability to learn, it's able to create a more normalized perception of pain. We give the first treatment for free, because in many cases it's pretty profound after some education about what we're doing and how we do it and why we do it, and then to give, you know, the experience of it, the relief that many clients see is pretty profound. But it's really a process of repetition and exposure in order to change the brain and help to restore the brain back to a more normal pain experience.
0: So you know, You mentioned something, and I'd I'd like to kind of focus on it again because, as putting my physician hat on and neuro guy back on, um, uh, you know, a transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation unit, which is a a TENS unit, as you discussed. Yep. It works essentially the way you're describing it's a tingling, buzzing sensation on your skin, drives up uh, sensations into your, you know, ultimately through your peripheral nerve uh, peripheral nervous system up into your brain, brain blocks or suppresses pain messages to your brain. It can also stimulate, you know, the body to produce higher levels of our own natural painkillers, visa, you know, sure. like endorphins, et cetera. So tell me and tell all the doctors out there too, because we're all yeah. wondering the same thing. How is this different? Yeah,
1: well, that's a great question. And it it is significantly different. It's different in the, in both the output, the intensity, the waveform, and the dynamics of the, the impulse that's happening. Again, it's not a static message, it's a dynamic and changing message, which is all important. Also, the way that it's administered on the body. So, again, we don't, you know, a TENS unit is typically placed in the painful area. You're creating an analgesic experience because you're creating a new sensation in that area that's being experienced as pain. In our case, we're not just trying to mask the pain by giving that, you know, masking sensation or new experience there, but giving the brain new information so that it can go through the, the you know, the neuro the neuroplastic changing capability that it has to be able to learn and get, basically it's breaking up those new, those, those associations that it's wired to expect of pain, right. giving it the information so that it, it can normalize itself. And so we are able to achieve relief that becomes durable or lasting for weeks or months. In some cases it's indefinite and uh, without these side effects and risks, it's pretty remarkable.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm still not necessarily understanding the difference between um, the TENS unit based on what you just said, but are there any studies right now comparing? Um, yeah, there's
1: there's a few pilot studies that have been done at Mayo Clinic and Johns Hopkins. Um, you know, there's been economic um, challenges by the former licensee in terms of how do they really commercialize this. That TENS predication has ruined uh, really an economic reimbursement potential with insurance um, because it's predicated on a TENS unit. And so TENS reimbursement is quite low, as you know. So, um, what we've done is, um, you know, basically we're building a direct-to-consumer business around this technology because we saw an opportunity that seemed really quite promising. So right. we spent the last five years <clears throat> really understanding, does it, A, work? B, can we create a replicable, consistent business that allows us to, you know, to be able to deliver consistent results? And then can we build a business model that makes it affordable without insurance coverage and yeah. still create an economic well, return?
0: I, I, I get that. And before we get to do that, though, I'm just, I yep. guess, again, we're... It is sort of my fiduciary responsibility to sure. to do yeah, the yeah. due diligence here, uh, especially given the fact that you know I I know a thing or two about this stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. In general, what I'm trying to say is that typically the way we will judge in in medicine, you know whether whether something is better or different is through some kind of you know double blind placebo. Um, You're absolutely study, right, yeah. or in this case, do you have any reason to, um, you know, from from at least from the studies, say that this works better than a tens unit? And, uh, I, I'm, and, and I know, it, I'm, and I'm, I'm when I'm drawing the distinction between is subjective, uh, anecdotal data from your clinics, which I'm not saying is insignificant. I'm just I'm asking okay. like whether there are any studies right now showing differences?
1: There are studies showing differences, and uh, they're on our website and certainly happen to make them available to the audience that would be interested to, to review those. Um, but it, but they are limited. I mean, in full disclosure, they're limited. And what, what I found, so prior to starting Radiant, I spent a few years trying to sell this technology to physicians. Mm-hmm. The experience that I encountered was that most Professional clinicians, MDs, and including the gamut of alternative care physicians, are trained in pain science from the 1960s—the the gate control theory of pain—and uh, uh, Melzack and Wall, I believe, were the publishers of that of that um, you know theory and model. And and Melzack, in the late 90s, basically created a new theory called um, the pain neuromatrix. Theory, uh, which essentially kind of debunked it, and in a sense it says that you know the the that pain is multifactorial and that is a real brain component uh, driven versus what's you know kind of explained in the gate control theory of pain. So we found that many clinicians didn't understand the science that kind of underlined. Uh, both the more modern understanding of pain and, you know, the, the mechanism of action of our therapy, there was an economic disincentive for the, for, in many cases for them to adopt this therapy because it's very costly. One device that retails over $100,000 and there's no, re, no viable reimbursement. So that's, a, that's an economic challenge. And then you have an opportunity cost because, you know, there's other resources that you have that are built into your practice and to, to you know, to uh, redirect those into something that is hard to, you know, figure out how do you price and command a reasonable value to. So that combination of factors made it really hard. And then there's limited studies. So as I went out to talk to doctors about it, this combination of factors really made it hard for us to to create a level of trust and understanding because to your point, physicians are trained to look at the studies, to read the studies. They want to see double-blind, placebo-controlled longitudinal outcomes if possible. And the reality is that that doesn't happen. But the therapy does work really remarkably well. And having personally spent about a decade in the hearing aid industry hearing aids are not covered by insurance, they're not cheap, an average cell price for a set of hearing aids is about seven dollars or $8,000, I thought, well, if this technology really does work and people are spent, willing to spend money, and I think you've worked also as a cosmetic surgeon for a while as well, so you know people are willing to spend money for things that are important to them if they see the value and understand it. I created a different business concept, which is to build clinics and go right to the consumer because I can't, I can't create studies that don't exist. I can't fund studies that don't exist. I don't have the, I, at this point, didn't have the rights to the technology to do that. And, you know, you know would it would be illogical for me to, you know, deploy that type of capital if I, even if I had it. So I said, let's just see if we can create a consumer appeal that makes this work. And so what we've done is the last five years, we've really been in the learning mode. You know, we've had, we've been generating revenue, but we really consider it pre-revenue and really kind of a learning of both the therapeutic and the business side of things to marry them in a way that we think can be quite appealing. What we've seen is that we average across, I don't know the exact number, but it's over 500 people that we've treated over the last five years, an average reduction of about 84% on the vast scale. So people come in, they typically measure pain from zero to 10. And you know, most of our clients are coming in pretty high levels of pain enough that they're willing to, you know, eventually invest in our therapy. But if they're a six, seven, eight, nine, 10, we average average shift that down 84%. So we may not fully resolve the pain. Pain is obviously a very human experience that we all have. Right? I mean, we want to set reasonable expectations, but it, it's it's significant to the point where we've seen people who previously have, you know, many of our clients have tried everything, quote unquote. You know, I mean, we've had people that have elected to have, for example, a leg amputated after years of failed therapies, you know, drug addiction and nothing resolving their pain. Many of our clients tell us they've become suicidal, and we have one client in particular who was so fed up, he elected to have his leg amputated. They amputate his leg, it becomes phantom pain because it's a neurogenic problem, not really a tissue problem at this point. And um, at this point, he was in a very dark place. Fortunately, he didn't take his life and didn't take other drastic measures, and we were able to treat him. And he's, uh, you know, his testimonial, and, and in fact, news clip, the local news station covered his story. Uh, You know, it's remarkable to see these people get their lives back, and so, you know, it, you know, we don't have the answer that most physicians want in this, in the sense of what is, you know, the, the study evidence of it, but we have certainly, you know, our own internal data and clinical sure. results and, and anecdotal stories that are mind blowing.
0: No. And I, and I totally get it. And I'm, I'm not trying to discredit by any means. I think that there's, hmm. there's two different things we're talking about here. One is yeah, um, which, you know, there, there's a lot of things out there that, tend to work for people that there isn't a lot of study studies on for the longest time we didn't have a lot of information on acupuncture now we do have information on, ac- on acupuncture um i think yeah. that the the primary thing i was trying to get at is you know from a uh, from a neurophysiology standpoint i'm trying to just try, try to make that distinction try to understand exactly what the difference is but let's focus a little bit on the business side of this because obviously this is an investing show. Yeah. It is not a medicine show. Um, Let's talk a little bit about, well, first of all, you were uh, featured in uh, Inc magazine. uh, Your book was, tell us about your book. What was that all about?
1: Well, our our vision is to build a a chain of stores and these, these, these are treatment centers But you know, our, our brand is called radiant pain relief centers. And the vision of building clinics is, twofold. Number one, it allows us to create consistency in the experience, to create a whole new experience. <laughs> in fact, we've modeled the entire business model around delivering this therapy in the most effective and consistent and appealing way. So we've created these these centers, and we have a couple here in Portland that we've been uh, learning through and refining. Um, but you know, they allow us to create consistency, which is necessary to build a brand. And as we control the brand and we control the revenue and the you know, P&L for the center, we have a vested interest to want to now start to promote that directly to consumer <clears> and create create a return. Um, it allows us to create efficiencies in that so that we can price it to be affordable. In fact, it averages around 10 bucks a day for our clients to get and maintain relief depending on how much they use it and um, and still build very profitable enterprise as a business. Our growth model, uh, just to touch on this real quick, is instead of you know, opening the centers and owning them and you know, having to have the capital to do that, is to create an investment opportunity for local clinicians. Instead of selling them a device for $100,000 that they then have a high opportunity cost and have to try to figure out, does it really work? How do I make it work? You know, both you know, clinically and financially, they can invest a much lower amount of money in a local center that we build it's completely passive for them. There's no opportunity cost. They can refer if and when it makes sense, and they get a return based upon the performance of that center. That's uncorrelated to their referrals, so it's clean of Stark laws and anti kickback laws. And this will allow us to use local capital to create uh, hopefully fans and influencers and referrers in the market, uh, and be able to accelerate our growth. So that's that's our kind of our business. So the the the,
0: the 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 uh, what you're doing right now is a reg- reg- regulation crowdfunding or reg. Regulation AAA uh, offering. Well, right
1: now we're in a Reg D, so we are oh, still okay. closing out a private a private placement. Uh, at the time of this recording, we're headed to uh, Kevin Harrington's Angel Investor Network event uh, in the middle of March, and um, that and a couple of things we hope to be able to close out our private placement round soon. Um, and then and then we will go into a crowd funded public offering opportunity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was, your, what was your
0: What was just out of curiosity What was the structure of your private placement? Um, what, what kind of GPLP and structure was that?
1: Yeah, initially uh, it was a convertible debt. Uh, and then as we, as we began to make plans and, you know, submit to the SEC to prepare for the reggae plus, we went through a conversion process and converted everybody into equity. And we since then have been raising money in, in equity. And, um, and then in the reggae plus basically created a new company that's Primarily focus on just the technology piece, not all the infrastructure and management of the centers. Just the technology is a simpler business, and in that, you know, we'll sell equity, obviously, uh, right to the right to the crowd. Anybody, not even non accredited investors, can participate right. in that low
0: price point. And what what will that typically look like in terms of GPLP split on that kind of thing?
1: Do you have a in sense? terms of in terms of what will the, the dilution or the valuation be? Is that what you're asking?
0: Um, well, I mean, presumably this is something that you're. I mean, is this something that it's a private, it's, 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 uh, I'm just wondering how it's structured, obviously. I mean, we're, you know, if you, you've got a fund, so yep. you know, it'll be, uh, a, a, you know, reg triple a, whatever, but you know, is it, you know, a two and 20 is it, you know, is it, is there some kind of split what's between the, the operator side and the. Yeah, so what we've
1: done is we sold uh, getting convertible debt initially and then migrated into equity. We've been selling equity since then in Radiant Health Management Corporation, which is a, a, right now at Oregon C Corp. And that's the management company that will run and manage and grow the assets for the individual clinics. We've created a new company and basically replicated the cap table of from the, from the Radiant Health Management Company, replicated it as founders in the new company. So for our investors in that private placement, uh, there's no cost additional cost to then become quote unquote a founder in the new company. It's that new company, the Radiant Technology Holdings, that will take through this reggae plus. And so we'll raise money at a much higher valuation in that new new technology company. And then we have two businesses that are different. One is focused on management and operations, one is a technology holding and you know selling company. <clears throat> the technology company is a pretty simple business to operate because we buy, buy and or manufacture technology at price X, we sell it at price Y. Not a lot of operating complexity. so a bulk of that revenue flows right to the bottom line, giving us the ability to create a dividend potential for investors in that uh, side of the business. And then our plan is to take—we have two entities, and you know there's a potential, um, you know, acquisition opportunity with somebody like a like a DeVita or some other aggregator that might want to. By the management company at some point, and then you know the, the other company that's focused on technology may be more appealing to a technology-based company like a you know a Medtronic or J and J or somebody you know bigger down the road, or what our plan is currently is to try to keep our fortunes as controlled as much as possible. Ultimately, once we've grown the company over a couple of years period of time, merge those back together. So there's going to create a, you know, a partial liquidity event for the shareholders and Radiant Health Management Corp. Merge those companies back together and then uplist on an exchange and take the company, you know, public through an IPO. Got That's it. probably about three years down
0: the road. Got it. And tell tell me, uh, you got the, obviously you've got the, the Oregon, the shop in Oregon. Yeah. How's that one doing?
1: Uh, Therapeutically, it's doing phenomenally well. Uh, From a business standpoint, we're right on track with our with our key performance indicators. So we've had basically a pilot operation. Um, We're now able to grow those to full capacity. And we're going to be opening a new center in Boston here in about 90 days, Los Mm -hmm. Angeles to follow. Are Are you
0: profitable in Oregon?
1: Uh, we' we're, we're not net net profitable, but we are seeing the, K, the KPIs that would indicate as we grow scale we'll hit profitability. So, and,
0: and that one's been about three years. What's your so your KPIs where, where do you know where do they predict profitability?
1: Yeah. So a single center uh, takes about a half a million dollars to capitalize and open mm-hmm. and it should grow. Uh, and I'll talk about our revenue model because we've really refined that revenue model to make it an appealing aspect to our, our clinical business too. But, um, a single center will grow to over about two and a half to three year period of time as it hits maturity, about a million in top line revenue and net about 35% EBITDA profits out of that center.
0: Yeah. Okay, great. Well, listen, it was good, uh, good talking to you and, uh, definitely, uh, good luck how do we uh how do we learn more about the business and potentially get involved uh, with the offering if if it's uh, something that people are interested
1: in yeah thank you buck well we'd love to chat with anybody clinicians or non-clinicians i mean pain is a really significant problem and the opioid addiction epidemic obviously makes this pretty urgent so uh, you know if you're interested the best place is to go to a simple landing page that we have at radiantrelief.com And there you can indicate if you're a clinician and you want more information about the science or the business opportunity related to clinicians, if you're interested in the reggae Plus, if you're interested in the private placement, if that's still open at the time, if you're just interested in the book or following our story, or if you have pain yourself, that's the best place to go. And we'll get you the appropriate information and route you appropriately, but radiantrelief.com.
0: Brendan, thanks so much for being on the show today. My pleasure, Buck. Thank you so much. Cheers. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. I'm curious... Uh, what you guys thought of that interview i mean it is a it is good to you know hear about different things going on. I would love to hear from you know a semi neurologist in particular uh, did I do a good job john did i good do, do a good job uh, did I ask the right questions? you know I'm just a dumb surgeon so I don't necessarily know yes i used to used to be in the neurosurgical field some time ago and I really was into neuroscience but uh, but, uh, at the end of the day, I was a dumb ne- uh, surgeon, not a, uh, an actual neurologist. So anyway, any of you neurologists out there, uh, who are, or who have something to say about this, chime in. And I'll even mention on, on, um, Wealth Formula Network on our next call. Uh, anyway, um, now for me, this is, uh, you know, this, this of course is an, an investment opportunity that I would categorize as high risk. And it's not, it's not a, You know, it's not anything against this particular company. It's not anything against Brendan or even the technology. It could be the best technology ever, but it is a startup. And understand that startups are still by nature uh, that type of investment that can be, you know, high reward, but also very high risk. It's not like investing in, in, in real estate, right? Um, but there are lots of ways to invest outside of stocks, bonds, mutual funds, and even real estate that are riskier and sometimes provide higher reward for those of you who know, for me, that happens to be in the area of blockchain. Um, and I'm, uh, that's my high risk stuff. Um, so I'm not really necessarily into the startup world because I'm not a person who I think is really good at evaluating startups. Um, but This is uh, something that could be really interesting to those of you who are interested in startup technologies. So make sure to check out uh, their website and, you know, ask them questions, et cetera. And uh, if it's of interest, then move forward. Anyway, uh, that is it for me this week uh, on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off.